exactly sure how to start it. Uh, I remember being in, in Bible college, and they would say that really the two most important places in your sermon is how do you start and how do you end. And uh, I know where I want to end is just how I want to start. So you're gonna have to let me just kind of muddle around for a while until we can we can get going. But I I have watched over the course. Of my life and and I've reached the place where I can look back and see how things used to be and I can look uh, fondly if you will to those good old days of the 1980s and um, but it, it is amazing as I look around and I see where our our world currently is at the moment I know there's nothing new under the Sun in fact uh, one of the things that I've learned is as bad as you think this world has fallen into sin and debauchery um, it, it probably isn't any worse than it was during the time of Caesar it's probably no worse than it was at the times of Nineveh or no worse than it was in the times of Sodom and Gomorrah or pl- pretty much any time in the wor- in, in the history of, of mankind uh, we're sinners and we understand that we have fallen away we've broken that relationship with God, and so uh, our our nature, our human nature, is not designed anymore to lead us closer to God. But instead, the exact opposite is true; it leads us away from God. But I have noticed as life begin uh, 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 continues, I've looked out. And in fact, I found, and this is just one little blurb that I that caught my eye. It happened to. Two days ago, I believe, October 17th, 2019, it's one of the NBC headlines, and it says this, suicides and homicides are on the rise in young people. In 2017, suicide was the leading, or the second, the second leading cause of death among youngsters ages 10 to 24. And, and I'm not, I'm not going to talk about suicide. I, that's not the point. It just kind of caught me off guard for a moment that if you take, and again, I'm, I'm assuming that the writer here, Linda Carroll, in embassy, I'm assuming that she has done her study. I realize there's ways people get things wrong, but I, I was just struck that the second leading cause of death in our young people ages 10 to 24 is suicide. Not cancer, not diabetes, not diseases, but that. It's amazing when you begin to realize we're in a very critical point within our churches. Let me put it to you this way. And and this is not a political statement. It's a statement of, of, of understanding the times. I'm not necessarily speaking of a certain candidate or even a certain party, but listen to me very closely. We are one election away from churches being outlawed. We're one election away from from faith as you know it and worship as you know it being stifled. It's one election away from corporate worship being outlawed. Even some of our, our current candidates for the presidency have begun to make statements that if they are elected, they will uh, do this to the to, to religious churches. They will do this. They will take away their tax exempt status. You can go through it all. We're one election away. My question is this. It's a question that for over I don't know about three months I have 
I have, uh, it's been driving me, and here it is. Have I done enough as a pastor to lead you that are sitting in this congregation that should tomorrow the church is outlawed and they do as they do in China and they burn the church down, they raise the church, and I don't mean raise it up, R-A-Z-E, they, they push it to the ground and that happens in China on a regular basis. Have I done enough as a pastor to instill in you on this pew that you could live for God if you couldn't come every Sunday and every Wednesday and hear the word of God? Have I done enough as pastor? Have I prepared you enough to when corporate worship is outlawed and we can't gather here and lift up our hands and worship together? Have I done enough to prepare the church to live without the church? The second question, though, is a question that I ask every parent. Are you doing enough in your family? to prepare them, to prepare your children to live for God if they have no Sunday school teacher to go to, if they have no youth group to go to? Have I prepared my own family enough to lead them when there is no church to take them to? It's a sobering question. It's a question that has allowed me to stay up later than I normally like to stay up as over and over that question is pounding in my mind, have I done enough? I, I ask you to let me say something about Zane, and y'all don't need to go tell him this. This is, and I, I'm serious. I asked Zane the other day, I, I had a moment, and I said, Zane, what have I done? What do I do that you could look and say, when dad does this, he shows me Jesus? It was a hard question. I caught him off guard. Teenagers don't like those face-to-face -face intimate questions like that. It makes them uncomfortable. But he struggled to answer it. He said some kind of broad, vague answers. I know that if I ask him again and rephrase the question, he could answer it a little bit differently. But my heart broke as I began to wonder, have I done enough? Have I taught him enough? When he looks at my life, not my life as pastor, I know he can say, well, Dad, when you preach, I hear Jesus, and when you lead worship, I see you worship, and I know, Dad, in church what you do, but I'm taking myself out of the pastorship. I'm taking myself out of the worship leader and away from the Lighthouse United Pentecostal Church. Have I, Brandon Paul Buford, in his 16 years of living, have I done enough that one day if I had to vacate the scene, my son could follow in the footsteps that I think I blazed for him. Have I done enough? I don't know 
if I can answer that question the way I would like to answer it quite yet. Oh, we've lived for God our whole life. We've pastored. We've been youth pastor. We've evangelized. I brought them here and there and yonder. I've led them. They never miss church unless they're sick or unless we're out of town. We're here early before most of you get here. Our family is here late when most of you leave. But at the end of the day, when I lay my head down, I'm asking God, am I doing enough? Because I begin to look through the word of God and I find out that the word of God tells me in Job chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. In Job chapter 1 and verse 1, there was a man in the, in the, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and many other servants. This man was the greatest of all the people in the east. And his sons used to go and hold the feast in the house on each one on his day. That's their birthday. They would send, invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise very early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. Listen to me very carefully. You can go look at every commentary you want to look. This does not mean that Job as a dad could atone for the sins of his sons and daughters as they've done their own thing. This is not Job coming in and saying, well, if my kids aren't living for God, I can do something for God that will change their mind. We know, we understand, every one of us must, must be accountable for our own actions and our own merits. When, when Zane or Zoe or Zeke, after they reach that age of accountability, they will have to stand before God all by themselves. They can't hang on my coattails. They can't follow me. And so we as parents, we're not sacrificing to save our children. But instead, the commentators would say something like this. It was not that their father offered special sacrifices. And it, it's not that he knew they had done wrong. But instead... It showed that Job was a pious man and wanted to make sure his family was right with God. It was Job's simple request. It was his desire that his children, that they could be, be adults at this point. The understanding is his children had their own house and they were living their own lives, but Job simply wanted to make sure they never forgot to sacrifice to the Lord, that they never missed their chance to worship their creator. I wish that each one of our families would have that same commitment today to our children. I can't let them miss their sacrifices. I have to teach them. If I don't teach them, they won't sacrifice. If I don't walk with them, they won't worship. I have to be, listen to me, I have to be present in their lives, not just on their birthday celebrations, but I better be present in their lives, in their worship, in their spiritual teachings as well. I need jobs of the home that will make sure in your home sacrifices are being kept at the proper times because it begins at home. Look at your neighbor and say it begins at home. 
In Jeremiah chapter 35, there's a very interesting story that seems to be haphazardly placed in the prophecies and prophetic words of Jeremiah. The Bible says, Jeremiah 35 verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Joash, or Josiah, the king of Judah. He said, go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them, bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and offer them wine to drink. So Jeremiah does that. He goes to the the clan, if you will, of the Rechabites. And you can see their names in verse 3. He says, I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of uh, the man of God. It was near the chamber of the officials. You can keep kind of follow with me if you want to. I won't read each and every one of them. And I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. Now, you have to understand that we're in the middle, in this time frame, we're in the middle of a siege. We're in the middle of, of the enemy coming against Israel. And, and, and just a little bit uh, later, a few chapters later, you will find that Jerusalem falls and, and, and many go into captivity. And, and, and so it's, it's a time where uh, the pleasantries of life are hard to come by. It, it's during this overall time period that you can find a story, and I, I think the kings maybe the Chronicles, I'm not for sure, that talks about they were under siege and they were so hungry, there was no food, that they were eating the dung of doves and they were eating each other's children so that they wouldn't starve to death. It's a bad time. And Job or, or, or Jeremiah brings the Rechabites and their families in and he puts wine in front of them and says, drink. And they answered in verse 6, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, you shall not drink wine, neither you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant or have a vineyard, but you shall live in the tents all your days that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. And we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us to drink no wine, and all of our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, and our daughters, to not build houses to dwell in. We have no vineyards, no field, nor seed, but we have lived in tents and obeyed all and done all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. I don't have time to go through it, but if, if you could take that, here's the backstory. Jonadab the son of Rechab, had told his own family, he said, I, I know there's some things happening, but I'm asking you as your father, don't, don't drink wine. Don't, we're, we're not going to go live in cities. We're going to be a, a nomadic people. And, and, and that, that clan of the Rechabites, that was the way they were raised. Later, when the siege came, these Rechabites came into Jerusalem for safety. They didn't normally do this, but it was a bad time. They came into the city for safety. This was not God uh, 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 trying to trip up the Rechabites. If you go through it at the end of this chapter, you find that the Lord made a very valid point. He used the Rechabites and their desire to obey their father. This was not a spiritual commandment. This had nothing to do with the law of God. This had nothing to do with anything of God. It was a man and he had his own set of, of traditions and rules for his family and he had taught his family such that generations down the line they had not 
going against the teaching of their father and the Lord makes this commandment at the end of this chapter. He says, Jeremiah, tell those in Jerusalem, how in the world can someone obey their earthly father in such that generations after generations, they will not even build a vineyard, but yet you who have almighty God as your heavenly father have a hard time following his commandment. And so it is. They obeyed their father. He had taught them. They stood firm on their father's teaching. I'm here today to tell you, I hope you have those. I hope you teach your family. I hope you teach your children. But how much more should we as godly parents teach our children the things of God and teach our children to stand strong in the truth? Teach them to throw a ball. Teach them to work on their car. Teach them how to change the oil in their car. Teach them to balance a checkbook. Teach them how to do this, whatever it may be. Teach them how to bake a pie. But for God's sake, would you teach them to pray? Would you teach them to fast? Would you teach them to read their Bible? Would you teach them church is important? I'm broken when I watch families that have taught their kids incredible things, but I hear an old song beginning to perk up in my ears. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I have treasures laid up somewhere beyond the blue. I'm glad you taught them to live here on earth, but have you taught them to live for eternity? It's Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 1. If you have any knowledge of the Bible and I begin to say Deuteronomy 6, you immediately would think in your mind, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And we can dance and we can shout on that beautiful revelation of who God is, but I beg you to read the beginning of that chapter and read some verses beyond. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that your Lord, your God has commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it, that you fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's sons by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be long. And here therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God of your fathers hath promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Here it is. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Verse 5, and you shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words have I commanded you today shall be on your heart. And here's the key. I'm here today to change your understanding of Deuteronomy chapter 6. The key of this chapter is not Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The key of this chapter, the strength of this chapter is not you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. But I believe today the strength of this chapter lies there in verse 6. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. Verse 7, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your 
your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you'll bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Listen to me right now. I love the church of the living God. This is my ministry to pastor. It's my occupation to stand behind a pulpit and preach and I'm going to come every time the doors are open and I'm going to lead as best I can. I love being your pastor but I'm here today to tell you the law does not begin at the church. The law begins at your home. We've got something all messed up in the traditions of going to church and the generations behind us that that started all of this. We've got it messed up. We say if I can get my my children to church and let them go to Sunday school and jam and youth service, they'll be okay. I'll just get them to church and I don't have to do anything. The focus on the teaching and training is not the responsibility of the church. It's the responsibility of the home. When you sit in your house, train. When you're walking in your day, train them. When you go to bed at night, talk to them. When you get up in the morning, teach them. Put it on your hands that when you're doing stuff, you remember God. Put them near your eyes that while you're watching, you remember God. Write them on the door of your house. Write them on the gates. Teach them. Remind them. Show them God. I heard Brother Terry Shock say it because of the times. It was the catalyst of this message that really has been percolating since January of this year. That the church is responsible to the home, but not for the home. When I get to heaven, the Lord is not going to look at me as your pastor and hold me responsible for what happened in your home. He's gonna hold me responsible. Did I equip the home to lead appropriately? I believe, and and, and I say this, and, and I say this drawing on 10 years, I'm, well now 11 years as pastor, I draw on 4 years of being a youth pastor so this is not necessarily something that is happening right now within the families of our church, when I say this, I've just been around the block I've, I've walked a path before I realize I'm now one of those middle aged pastors, I'm not a young kid anymore but I can wear myself out trying to fix in a sermon what should be dealt with at the home by God-fearing families and God-fearing parents. I cannot fix in 25, 30, 40 minutes behind this pulpit. I cannot fix what the home won't work on. Parents, your kids usually won't worship unless they see you, mom and dad, first worshiping. So I ask you a question. If I could get you alone and said, what do you want your child to do when they grow up? You say, well, I want my child to be fiscally responsible. I want them to to make good decisions with their money. And I hope every parent has that desire in in their life. 
So you've got a 12, 13, 14 year old, even earlier than that, whatever it is, and you want your child to be fiscally responsible. What do you need to do? You need to go take them to the bank, get them a debit card, open up their own bank account in their name and your name too, Give them a little money if they don't have a job. Put it in that bank account. And you need to give them their debit card. Every one of our kids by the age of six, it seems, has a cell phone. Can go and they can see their own online bank account. And you teach them how to use a debit card. My mom and dad, they were awesome. They taught me how to use a checkbook. Right at the time, checkbooks went out of vogue and debit cards came in. And my parents thought debit cards were of the devil. Some of y'all did too. And so I got myself into some trouble. You know, we talk about rubber checks, but it's real easy to make a rubber debit card that bounces. Because when I started using debit cards, they didn't have online banking, so I couldn't go and check my bank account. And I wasn't smart enough when I put my debit card in the machine to go put it in a check register so I would know how much money I had. I'm telling you that if you want your child to be fiscally responsible, you have to start teaching them about finances and how to be responsible to finances now. I want them to be, get a job. I want them to be a good worker. Are you training them to be a good worker now? Oh, pastor, when our child grows up, I want them to live for God with all their heart, their mind, their soul, their strength. I want them to be a worshiper. I want them to come to church every time the doors are open. I want them to give. Are you teaching them that now? They don't just magically wake up when they're 21 years old and some light bulb goes off in their head and they say, you know, I need to go to church, but yet mom and daddy didn't take me really faithful and I never saw mom and dad give and I never saw mom and dad worship. I'm telling you right now, it's important for you. Teach them, teach them, teach them. I'm going to say something that may be a tad bit offensive. We like to preach about the mistakes of the children of Israel who came out of the wilderness and went into the promised land. We, we spend time in Judges and we see, and there's this phrase in Judges that says this, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. We like to go into the Kings and the Chronicles, and we like to preach about the downfall of Israel, how they just, I mean, every once in a while they had a good king, but it was just awful, awful. They all did what was right in their own eyes. But listen to me very carefully. Don't you ever forget that those that did what was right in their own eyes, those that, that, that couldn't seem to live for God even though they were standing in the middle of God's promises, don't ever forget those were the children of the ones that came out of Egypt and released. And so I bring you to Numbers chapter 14 and verse 1 when all of the congregation begin to weep and grumble against Aaron and Moses and those people that God brought out of Egypt, they said, we wish we would have died in the land of Egypt. Why is the Lord bringing us here? Let's choose a leader. Let's go back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fall on the face. They cry. God says, I'm going to throw them all away. I don't want to have anything to do with this rebellious bunch of people. Moses begs. Moses pleads with his people, or with God to spare the people. And then Numbers chapter 14 gives you the consequence of those that came out of Egypt. He said, I have pardoned according to your word. I might not kill them right now. 
But as long as I live, the Lord says, as long as the earth shall be full of the glory, none of these that have seen my glory in, in, in Egypt, that have seen my signs that I did and have been in this wilderness and have put me to the test ten times, they are not going to see the promised land. Do you realize, do you remember, do you recall that everybody saved Joshua and Caleb, everyone that stepped across the Jordan River and into the promised land were children of those that had ten times rebelled against God. They were constantly griping at Moses and Aaron and they had tested God. And you wonder, you wonder why did those children there walk into the promised land and mess everything up? They didn't stand a chance. They were modeling their parents. There's a lot of studies that go on that say if your dad was an alcoholic, then chances are very high that you'll be an alcoholic. And if you were raised in abusive situations, then you are prone to abuse. And we could talk about that, but may we please change the narrative. If, you're, if you are a worshiper, the chances are very high your children will worship. If you're faithful to the house of God, then your children will be faithful to the house of God. If your children are ever going to read the word or know the word, it's because they saw my mom and dad reading his word I say this with a broken spirit I say this with all the kindness and love that I can possibly muster up but Proverbs 22 is not first to help a parent whose child has walked away from the truth I have walked with some of you parents I know that you have lived with situations where after you have raised your child, your child has done whatever they want to do. And I get that because you can do everything perfect. You can do everything right. I mean, even Jesus had one of his 12 walk away from him. So I know there are moments in which we look at our children and we have tried, we've done the best we can, and somewhere they walk away. But Proverbs 22 is not a crutch that you lean on. I'm here today to tell you, Proverbs 22, the proper context is this, train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. I'm here today to tell you the positive thing is this, train them, teach them, teach them, train them, whatever it takes, and they will not depart. Proverbs 22 15 folly is bound up in the heart of a child but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 22 28 do not remove the ancient landmarks that your fathers have set. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 through 4 children obey your parents in the Lord for it is right. Honor your father and mother it's the first commandment with promise that it may go well with you you may live long in the land. Fathers don't provoke your children to anger and we like to say that part, but have you ever talked about the second part? But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Psalm 78, verse 1 through 4. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter the dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us, and we will not hide them from our children, but we will tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. The promise of Deuteronomy 4, 9, it 
was the commandment there that says only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life make them known to your children and to your children's children what are you doing to make the things of God known to your children and to your children's children we have spent now eight weeks in a foundations class and I'm so thankful for those that have been there we've had a, a, a right at an average of 16 uh, people in that class every uh, Wednesday night for the last eight weeks and I'm so very thankful and we've talked about so many things but one of the most important things in this 21st century is for our children to see the roles of God's creation in order very clearly our children are crying out. They desperately need to be seen the model of what a godly man is and a godly lady. The order of the home is very simple. God has and has always and will always intend for families to be raised by a father and a mother. Marriage has and always will be intended for a man and a woman to leave their family and to be joined together. And the key word is forever. That's God's plan and model. And I will tell you behind this pulpit that if you follow God's plan and model, you will have a much easier time. However, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 through 9, explains something. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, you know... The, the, Pharisees came and said, is it, is it okay to divorce one's wife? Or, or is, is divorce okay? And Jesus came and he said, don't you, have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Therefore shall a man leave his father's mother, hold fast to his wife. Those two shall become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said, well, how come Moses gave us the permission to have a certificate of divorce and watch what he says in verse 8 because the hardness of heart Moses allowed you to divorce your wife but in the beginning it was not so listen to me very carefully as I begin to try to, 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 to wind this and bring it all together God makes it very clear that his plan should never change that God has designed families and marriages and, and, and there to be two parents and, and they should live for God. But sometimes because of the hardness of heart and the way that life goes, the plan, the ideal plan of God has changed. The idea that God has, the plan that God has is simple. Men, you're called to be the priests of your home. You're called to, called to be the one that guards your home. What are you allowing to come into your home? You wouldn't allow just anybody to walk in. You wouldn't allow just any old thing to come in. I'm asking you as a priest of your home, be diligent, be sensitive, be spiritually sensitive and prayerfully sensitive. God designed it that way. He designed godly men to be the leaders of our house. He designed it that way. He knew what it takes. Sometimes moms can holler and scream and yell dad walks in snaps one finger and all of a sudden the kids listen he designed it that way mothers he designed you with an incredible thing I used to call it as a kid my mama had eyes in the back of her head anybody know what I'm talking about it's that intuition that moms have it's that sixth sense if you will 
you ladies have something genetically built into your DNA code that allows you to be sensitive to things because I've watched people that were just awful sinners. They can still be sensitive. Ladies are sensitive. Y'all have that ability, but that sixth sense is probably from God. But if you yourself is not connected to God, then how are your intuitions and your sensitivities being connected to God? That's the ideal plan. But sometimes, because of a hardness of the heart of humanity, because of the sinful nature of humanity, the ideal plan of God doesn't happen. So let me speak to the single parent for a moment whatever the reason is, whatever the cause is, you're now finding yourself having to raise your child by yourself. Or maybe you're the only parent living for God. But I'm here today to tell you as your pastor, you can do it. Oh, I know it's hard. But here's the answer. You're going to have to be doubly strong in your own walk with God because you're going to have to be the priest of the home and you're going to have to be the sensitive one of the home. I know it's hard, but be doubly vigilant, guarding and teaching your household. Stand firm, single parent. God will keep you. So I'm going to use a phrase today. It's not father. It's not mother. Because unfortunately, so many homes in our world today and even in the church are missing one of those. They're missing a godly father. They're missing a godly mother. And so I'm going to use this phrase, the head of households. If you are a father, you have a biblical mandate to be the head of your household. And you need to walk in that calling strong and more sensitive to what God desires than anything else in your life I don't care if you're a CEO of a fortune 500 company I don't care if you have 500 employees that work under you if you're not leading your household in the things of God that fortune 500 CEO ship means nothing to you if you're a single mother you have been placed into that head of household. If your spouse has passed away, you're now the head of the household. If you're a single adult in this building, you are the head of your household. And my sermon today, while has been very focused on family units, if you're a single person in this house, listen to me very carefully. This applies as much to you as anybody else because if you don't get it right when you're single, you'll never get it right when you have a family. You have to live for God now. You have to be strong for God now. You have to be on guard of the things that are coming in your home now. Brother Perryman, yesterday at our men's devotion and our breakfast not knowing at all what I was going to speak today part of his message included the story of Jairus and his daughter Brother Perryman made this statement and I wrote it down as quick as I could he said dads, fathers 
when you bring your children home. You've got to bring your, or, I'm sorry, he, he said, he said, men, you've got to bring Jesus home into your families. And if you'll bring Jesus home, your children will live. If you'll bring Jesus home, your homes will be fear, freed from despair. And I like that. I'm asking you parents, I'm asking you heads of household, have you brought Jesus home? Brother Ronnie Lacombe this year in September at our Missouri Men's Conference made this statement. He was preaching. He said, we have to invest and put something in our homes that remind our kids of God's work. And he began to tell some stories. Brother Ronnie Lacombe fell out of a tree stand. And I mean, he broke himself up. He was in a coma for a long time. But he has a, a, a cane in his house because God miraculously healed him and brought him back from death's door. And he keeps a cane in his home so when his grandkids come, he can tell them of a healing God. Brother Ronnie Lacombe, had, had a, he, he was saddling a horse. And, and, and somehow his saddlebag fell off the horse. He, he's, a, he's a man's man. But his saddlebag fell off and a 22 gun that he had in there went off and shot him in the leg and lodged and he, he took that gun apart, he cleaned it up and he keeps it in a place where people can see it because he wants to remind them of a God that heals. I'm asking you today what is in your house? What is in your life? What is in your family that your children can walk up to and say, Daddy, what meaneth these stones? And you can look at them and say, well, those stones remind us of a time when God brought us over the prom, uh, uh, over the, from the wilderness into the promised land. We crossed across the Jordan River. What meaneth these stones? What do you have in your house? So it is as we stand today in this building. Would you give me just a moment? It'll be a little bit chaotic, but I've asked our Sunday school to come up and I want our teachers to help them find their families. The kids can go to their families. Sunday school teachers, find your families. If you're standing in this place, I need you to be with your family right now. Come on, step out of your pew. Go back. Go forward. I don't care. Come up to the front. Whatever it is, but I need you to be with your family right now. statement that Joshua makes rings today in this building. He said, as for me and my household, I, we will serve the Lord. There's two very important statements contained within that scripture. As for me, I need everybody in this building to put your finger right in the middle of your chest and say, as for me, no, no, not my house. That's not what I said. As for me. Don't expect your house to live for God if me ain't living for God. Don't expect your children to do things that you never dreamed of doing. Say, 
say it again. Say, as for me, I will serve the Lord. I'm giving you a multi-pronged altar call right now. The first is, you're going to pray that prayer. As for me, I will serve the Lord. I don't know where you are, mom, dad. I don't know where you are, head of household. I don't know where you are. I can judge some of your, your, your actions. I mean, there, there's sometimes, God forbid, there's sometimes y'all put stuff on Facebook that I'm like, dear Lord, I know what I need to preach Sunday. That's y'all's own dumb fault. But, but I, I, I so, so yeah, maybe you do something crazy, you throw it out for everybody to see, I know where you are, but I can't, I can't, I can't read your heart. Only you know, am I living for God? It starts with you. The second is, as for my household, we will serve the Lord. And so I am imploring, I am challenging. I am speaking to every family unit in this building. I'm speaking to every head of household in this building. Yes, you're going to pray here right now. You're going to pray in here in a moment. I need the heads. Something that will not happen in this building. Something that I've made a personal commitment. But I'm asking you right now. It starts in the home. I'm asking you to commit to teaching your children a nightly Bible study or devotion. Maybe you can't do it every night, and maybe the night is not the right time in your house. I understand that. But I'm asking you to take two, three, or four nights or more. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. Don't let the only time your children hear the Word of God be at church. This is the smallest portion of time that your children have in their week. They need to hear it so I, as your pastor, and I, as your shepherd, I'm committing to this church and to our families that I will be sharing with you Bible studies, devotions, and other tools that you can use and bring home to your family so that you can teach them because it starts, it begins at the home. Here's where you start tonight, moms and dads. You sit down with your children and you ask them, what does the Bible say about salvation? I know they hear me preach it all the time. They hear our ministers preach it all the time. But you need to ask them, do they know what it is? Can they relay what salvation is? Can they take it to their schools? If not, then you need to start teaching them what the Bible says. Ask them, what does the Bible say about worship? What does the Bible say about holiness? What does the Bible say? Lead them. So it's first, as for me, as for my family, I will teach my family. Would you let me put down the mic? Would you let me take off my pastor's hat? Would you let me walk to my own family that God's blessed me with? And let me, as a head of this household, pray for Zane and for Zoe, for Zeke and Brianna. And I'm asking you to do the same as we hallow this place. I'll come back in a little bit. But right now, I need you to commit to start in your home.